Let's turn our attention now to God's Word. If you would, open up to the, the book of Titus. The book of Titus. We've been studying this book now for about four weeks, this tiny letter, and we're excited to jump into it this morning. We, we are going to open up a new section, a new topic this morning as it comes through uh, our normal study of God's Word as we go book by book and verse by verse. And the topic this morning that that Paul gives to Titus is that of godly leadership. Godly leadership. Let me read for you what we're going to study this morning, and I'll pray, and then we'll jump into it. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Heavenly Father, with our Bibles opened before us, the very words of God right on our laps, we ask that you would help us to understand what you have to say to us. And may our lives be transformed by it. May we submit to it and fall in love with you in deeper ways because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul wrote this tiny yet robust letter to young uh, Titus. Paul wrote this to Titus. And he wrote it to him to encourage him and to really pass down this uh, authority that the Lord Jesus Christ had given to Paul. He he passes the baton down to Titus to, to build and to establish healthy churches on the island of Crete. And the letter wasn't just for Titus, it was for the entire island. The whole island needed to understand that Titus had the authority to appoint elders, to, to teach the truth, to, to shape and model and form these churches on this island. Titus was charged with with establishing all kinds of healthy churches on this island that rests in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And the first arrow that the Apostle Paul shoots at Titus, the first theological arrow that he pulls from his quiver, is, a, is a, an arrow called leadership. Leadership. The churches. Primary, primary uh, purpose or the way that you would establish a, a church is through godly leadership. Church leadership is the priority. And Paul knows this. Everything rises and falls with the leadership. Without godly leadership, the church will be unhealthy and the church will be dishonoring to God. If the church is unhealthy... If the leader is unhealthy, if the leadership is unhealthy, or if it is bad, or if it is not established, everything else will fall apart. 
the leadership is off in any way or in any direction. It will steer the ship sideways until it is shipwrecked or it is shut down or until it's destroyed or just full-on irrelevant. Everything rises and falls with the leadership. And this is why the, uh, the Apostle Paul would say this right off the bat to Titus as he jumps into how to establish a healthy church. He begins with that which is most important, the leadership. Because as I said, everything rises and falls with the leadership. And he gives Titus two things. You can see with, with me in verse 5, there's, there's really two things that he needs to do to establish healthy local churches on this island of Crete. Essentially, this was the priority for Titus. Look at what it says. This is why I left you in Crete. Here's the entire reason, Titus, why you are here. This is what you are to do. This is why you're in Crete right now. This is why I left you. And, and here's the two things that you're to do. Number one, you are to put what remained into order. That's number one. Put what remained into order. And then number two, Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Set in order what remains and appoint elders. It's interesting there. If you look at that, that word there, put what remained into order. That, that, that word, put what remained, that phrase there. In the original Greek language, it, uh, the word is orthuo. Right? It's where we get our English word for orthopedic or for an orthodontist. Now, we know what an orthopedic does. He, he resets the bones of the body that are broken, and he puts them back into place. That's why you would, you would go to, uh, to that type of a doctor. We're probably even more familiar with an orthodontist, right? Because we know what an orthodontist does, right? He takes the teeth that are in your mouth. They're, they're sideways, they're crooked, and they need to be set in order. They need to be put into place. Maybe they put braces on you or a retainer on you. And the whole point of an orthodontist or, or, or to have an orthopedic is uh, so that they would take what remains in your body, your teeth or your bones, and to set them back into order, put them in their proper place. And you have two prepositions that come before this word that, 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 mean that, that gives even a deeper understanding of this is that you completely straighten it out. Uh, this, this was the charge of Titus. You are to completely straighten out the churches that are on this island. Make them straight. Set them in order. And it says there that you might uh, put what remained into order. So there were churches that were already there. There are people groups that were already set on this island. There, uh, there could be anywhere from a dozen to a hundred different churches on the island. And Titus would go around and he'd have to make things straight inside these churches, completely straighten them out. And you say, well, how bad was it? Like, what, like tell me a little bit about what was going on in these churches. Well, all you need to do is just read uh, with me in, in verse 10. Uh, this is exactly what was happening inside these churches. There, there are many who are insubordinate. There's empty talkers. There's deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. What ought not to be taught? One of the Cretans, a, a prophet of their own. So this is their, their own testimony by a, by a very own Cretan is saying this about his own people. Cretan are always liars. They're evil beasts. They're, they're lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true 
Therefore, rebuke him. This is what Titus has to deal with. Families who are in churches that are upsetting the entire church because of their behavior, because of the things they're saying, because they are liars and deceivers and they're empty talkers. And, and this was the culture and nature of these churches. And so Titus would have to come in and completely straighten it out. This was his task. This is what he was encouraged to do. Whatever remains, completely straighten it out. The question then is, how do you do that? What's the first thing you do in an organization when it's running sideways? What's the first thing you do when you, when you see an organization going down the wrong path? Well, the first thing you do is you evaluate the leadership. What is the leadership doing? And this is exactly what Paul tells the Titus. This is how you straighten things out in these churches. You know what you do? Look at what it says. Appoint elders in every town as I direct you. The first thing you do is you establish the leadership. You focus on the leadership. Verse 5, you, you establish the leadership, and then he, then he goes on in chapter 2 and verse 1. Uh, the second step you would do in, in, in trying to set in order what remains is you teach what accords to sound doctrine. You, you teach the truth. And so this two-sided coin of how to set in order these churches or, or to build a healthy organization or, or to establish a, a healthy local church is you establish elders and you teach the truth. Those two things. You appoint elders in every town. That's what it says. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This would have been information that, the, that, that Titus would have already known. We'll talk about that in a second. This is not new information. He's just going to do what was already previously done in the New Testament church. And it begs the question this, what is an elder? What is a church elder anyway? And I just want to take a couple moments just to make sure we have a little bit of an understanding on what an elder is. The word here for an elder is presbyteros. It's where we get the word Presbyterian. It, it originally had the idea of an older man, but it, it quickly became used as an official title for church leaders. You can see in verse uh, uh, 7, it says, for an overseer. That's, a, that's another word that would be used for an elder, uh, an overseer. There's other words that are used interchangeably in the New Testament as well for an elder, uh, poimen, which is for a shepherd or for a pastor, or episkopos. You're like, episkopos, that sounds familiar. Yeah, that's where uh, we get the word for an episcopal. These are all synonyms. Listen, these are all synonyms for the same role of spiritual oversight in the church. So we could say this then. Number one, an elder is a pastor, an elder is a pastor in responsibility and in care. We have a team of elders here with Dave and Joel, and, and we view them not just as a, a, a board of trustee, but we view them as pastors. They take on the role, they take on the responsibility, and they, they take on the care of what a pastor would do. Some of these pastors... Uh, are called specifically to the local church, and they are paid staff of the church. Others are non-paid. They're, they're lay elders, but their, their role and their function is the same. They give spiritual oversight to the local church. Secondly, elders are on a team. 
elders are on a team. The biblical design of God is that it would be a team that leads the local church, not one single man. Uh, Well, let me rephrase that. There's only one single man that leads the church, and his name is Jesus Christ. Everybody else are under-shepherds to that as, as a team of elders who lead the local church. It was never our Lord's will for the local church to be controlled by one individual. As the Apostle Paul would establish churches all throughout the New Testament, it was always that he established elders in the plural. Never was it just one elder to control the whole thing. And in fact, this is what it says here, appoint elders, plural, multiple, a team, as under-shepherd to the one man, the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Third is this, elders are male. The biblical design of God's church, which he sent his son to die for, is that the elders are male. Now listen, this is a, this is a massive topic, okay? I'm not going to dig into it uh, too deeply, but I just want to briefly just mention it and say to what the biblical design, the blueprint of God's design is when it comes to leadership within the church. And we believe this wholeheartedly, listen, that God created both male and female as fully equal in personhood and in dignity and in value, but distinct in roles. This doesn't mean that women are incapable of the role or that they're incompetent. It just means that in God's perfect blueprint of a healthy church, he has called on a man to step up into this very serious, high-calling and lead others in the church. Daniel Dorini says this, this quote, he says, The reason for male-only leadership in the church is not that women lack spiritual character or ability that men possess. Rather, it is God's order for human society, going back to Genesis 2, for males to provide headship. In an egalitarian context of Western society today, this principle of male-only ordination infuriates those who demand the eradication of differences between the sexes. But the Bible's teaching is clear and insistent for both the church and the home. Qualified men are ordained to lead while godly women follow, support, and serve with the variety of their gifts. And so, we want to follow God's word as he has designed it to be in that way. Number four, elders are not a board of trustees. Some people think that, oh, an elder board, they're that high and mighty group that meets in their ivory tower and all they do is just pass down rules and legislation. You can't touch these people. I mean, they're just too high and lofty above everybody else. And it's this, this board of executives and, and directors. Biblical eldership is not business-like. It's not a business-like committee. When you first hear the word elder, what first should come to your mind is pastor shepherd, caretaker, guardian of the truth, those who lead in these three things, doctrine, discipline, and direction. That's what elders do. And this was a task given to Titus, appoint these men, appoint these elders who would lead the church in this way. 
was not new. This was not novel to him. This wasn't like, oh, that's a great idea. We've never done this before. But this has always been the model that was established before him. There's one place I can show you in Acts chapter 14. Well, there's multiple places, but I'll just show you one. In Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 23, this is what happened. He said when they had preached the gospel, this is the Apostle Paul, to the city that had made many disciples. So you got these people coming to Christ, and they're, they're all coming together to form the first church. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to, to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Look what they did next. And they had appointed elders for them in every church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the biblical pattern for the local church. A group of people come together and they, they want to be led in the things of the Lord. They want to make them mature disciples of Jesus Christ. The first thing you do, Titus, is establish the leadership by appointing elders. And then what the elders do is they're appointed to be elders, according to Hebrews chapter 13 in verse 17, is this. They are to give an account to the Lord for the way that they have fed and protected your soul. Just think about this for a second. The elders in the church are charged with watching out for your soul. There's going to come a day where I will stand before the Lord and I will have to give an account for the way that I protected and fed your souls. I will have to look the Lord in the eye and say to him, I did everything I could to help these people out, to feed them, to protect them, and to guide them. This is the charge that you have given me. This is the responsibility that you have given to me, and you've given to the elders in our church to, to stand before the Lord and say, I cared for the souls as best as I could. Now, i got to say this. i got to ask you this. Is that a responsibility that you really want? I mean, it's one thing to care for your own soul, your family's soul, and now the soul of the church. This is a very high calling, and it's one that the Lord takes very, very seriously. It's quite a responsibility. In fact, it's unlike any other job that you could take on. The calling and responsibilities of spiritual leadership are not for everyone, and God's care for His church is seen through leaders and elders of the church, and therefore the standard is very high. We've got to meet God's standard for leadership. And so what God has done in His grace is He's given us qualifications of what a godly leadership looks like. This is what an elder looks like, and we're thankful that He came up with these qualifications because just imagine what men would come up with if they had their own qualifications for who they think should lead the church. It would be a popularity contest, right? Hey, who's the, who's the most successful man in the church? That guy's got to get on the board. Hey, who's the guy that has got the most influence? That guy's get on the, get on the board. Hey, maybe there's a really good football player that we could put on the board because that guy would be a great elder. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's a great musician we could put on the board. There'd be all kinds. Like we'd come up with our list that, that we'd come up with this man-made list and go, yeah, that's going to lead the church. God has his list for us. These are the qualifications of a godly leader. to look up, and you can do this for yourselves, what makes a good leader? What does the world say makes a good leader? This is what the world says makes 
and qualifies a good leader. They're self-aware. They prioritize personal development. They focus on developing others. They encourage strategic thinking and innovation and action. They're ethical. They're civic-minded. They practice effective cross-cultural communication. Good leaders are able to look at an organization strategically, set its vision and mission and goals and objectives. They're effective at communicating, fully understanding the mission and their value, and they're effective at communicating these values. Here's God's qualifications. Look back with me. You'll find God's list very different than man's list. Verse 5, excuse me, verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to those who rebuke and contradict it. Turn back in your Bible just a couple of pages and in Timothy, you'll, you'll see a, a familiar list that Paul gave to Timothy as he establishes overseers in his church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 says this, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-control, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, he must manage his own household well with dignity, keeping his children submissive. Submissive, For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household well, how could he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Did you notice something in both those lists? Did you notice the high calling of the pastor and the elder of the church? Did you notice that both those lists, listen carefully, both those lists are more about the character of the person than the competence of the person? In fact, in both these lists, there's only one skill that the man of God, the elder or the pastor of the church is to have, and that is that he is to be able to teach the word of God. Outside of that, it's all about the character of the man. Character is king in the church. God cares more about the character of who is leading his church, the bride of Jesus Christ than personality or popularity, or if he's capable of leading men. God is not concerned about wealth or influence or age or prestige or business acumen or eloquence or communication skills or management skills or success. What matters to God when it comes to leading the church is if he's a man of character. The entire list is character qualities outside of teaching the Word of God. The man's godliness. And really, 
this is more of a list about being than about doing. Because what you say and what you teach doesn't matter if you don't have integrity. And listen, if it matters so much to God about a man's character, should it not matter to each of us as well? This is the standard. God has raised the bar. This is godliness. This is spiritual maturity. This is not just a list for pastors of the church, for elders of the church. This is a list of godliness. And some of you were thinking, well, thank goodness this list doesn't apply for me because I'm not an elder of the church and I don't even want to be an elder of the church. So this is for those who actually do and everybody else can just kind of tune me out for the rest of this week and the next few weeks to come. Well, no, this is a list of godliness. Wives, I bet you'd love for your husband to set this list as the standard by which he lives his life. I can't imagine a wife going, man, I don't like any of those things for my husband. I mean, really? No, this is the measure of godliness right here. And we're all to reach for the highest rung when it comes to character. And so we all submit to this list and say, okay, what areas do I need to work on here? I want to be a man of God. I want to be a leader of God. What, what is it that I need to work on here? Students, you're like, I can't be an elder in the church. This isn't for me. I, I had a long week, and I'm just going to take a nap right now because this really doesn't apply for me. Let me tell you, right now, this does apply for you because this is your standard as well. This is how you say, hey, am I a godly man? Am I pursuing godliness? Where do I find a list of the characteristics of how I can be a godly man? I, I, I may not be there now, but I, but I aspire to that. I want to be as close to Jesus as possible. Here's your list right here. This is for you. And I want to encourage you now to, to be a man of character now, to, to guard your integrity even now. You don't have to say, well, it's once I get married, then I have to worry about my character. Or once I get past college, then I'll worry about who I am. No, no, that starts now. The habits start now to build healthy, godly character in your life. I know we have in our church students who are in college, young adults who are at that time in their life where they're like, hey, I think I want to start dating. I think I want to, I, I think I want to, uh, take that next step in my life and start thinking about dating someone or, or potentially getting married. Women, here's your list of what it is by which you establish what you want in a man. You want a godly man of character above anything else. Men, you want a woman of character above anything else. And you're like, when do we talk about the women? Chapter 2, we'll talk about the women. Right now, I'm going to hit you men right now. I'm just going to go after it right now. It's true what the Bible says is this. Charm is deceitful. Charm is deceitful. Charm is a lie. Beauty is in vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. If you're looking for someone to date and to marry, find someone with the greatest character you could possibly find. It trumps everything else. You say, how can you say that? Because God said that. 
trumps everything else. Trumps everything else. Men in the church, this is the foundation to be a good leader in your home. This is the foundation to be a good leader at work. This is the foundation to, by which you say, I want to lead in whatever capacity that I'm in. This is the standard by which you hold yourself to. This is what God cares about most in a godly man. Leadership is the priority. Now look with me. You're thinking there's no way he's going to make it through all nine of these verses. You guys know me well. There is no way we're going to make it through all nine of these verses. In fact, we're only going to make it through the next, phase, next phrase of the next verse. We're going to start this. Okay, what are the godly characteristics of man? I want to be that man. Okay, Joe, I want to be that man. How do I become that man? Well, number one, the first characteristics of a godly man, of a godly leadership, is this, integrity. Integrity. Look at what it says. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach. Look down in verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, it says this. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. This is the umbrella statement that covers the rest of these qualifications. Mentioned two times here. One time in Timothy, this is not optional. This is not, well, I can skirt by the first one and just kind of deal with the other ones. No, this is the supreme virtue of a godly man. And this is what above reproach means. This is so interesting. You guys need to hone in on this with me and think through this with me. If a man is above reproach, to be above reproach is this, to not have a charge against you. To be without indictment, to be without accusation. It means this that if we were in a courtroom and you were called to the stand to swear by your life and your actions and your morality, there is nothing that anyone in the court could stand up and accuse you of. This man's charged with pride. This man is violent. This man is filled with hypocrisy. There would be no charge against you. In fact, you can go down the list and see of anything in this list, there would be a charge against that man. His spiritual life, his character, his godliness is all an example to the rest of the people that this is how you should live your life and nobody can bring a charge against him. The way he speaks, the way he loves his wife, the way he leads his family, the way he does business deals, how others outside the church view him. There's, there's nothing in this man that you can charge him with. He's complete. Now notice this, though, and I'm so thankful for this. Above reproach does not mean sinless. Above reproach does not mean perfect. If that was the case, there would be no elders in the church. I should just step down right now because I am a sinner and I get things wrong. But God isn't asking me to do that. He is saying to me, you need to be blameless. You need to be without blame. We know what the Bible says in Romans 
chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so when you're finding these godly men, Titus, and you're raising up these elders, Titus, find the one that has no charge against him. He cannot be indicted. He has no mark against his character, no sinful habit in his life that would disqualify him. He has deep spiritual, godly character. Find that man and put him in leadership because God could use that man. What are we describing here? We're describing a man of integrity, right? Complete life, a whole life. No double standards, no double meanings in his life. What he is at home, he is at work, he is with his friends, he is with his family, and he is at church. Jeff... Jeff Yorg says this as a simple definition of integrity. It's this, as you're trying to wrap this up in your mind and think through a man of integrity in your own life is consistently applying biblical principles in character and action. Consistently applying biblical principles. Integrity occurs when you submit your beliefs and actions with the standards of Scripture so there is consistency Okay, listen to this. You have integrity when you conform your beliefs and actions to what the Bible teaches. You align your attitudes, words, actions with biblical truth. And you strive for a seamless meshing of those in all areas of your life and home and work and school everywhere to be a leader with integrity. You're a man of God who says, I'm the same as home. I'm the same when I'm alone. It's the same me when I'm, when I'm uh, with my kids. It's the same me when I'm at work. I have the same values and standards. They're biblical, and I want to live by them. You're not going to find another me. And you're in submission to God's word when it comes uh, to the, the principles of Scripture, when it comes to your church attendance, when it comes to giving, when it comes to your devotional life and your work life, and your speech, and your prayer life, and your witness to unbelievers, there's, there's no charge against you, and all of it has been approved by God. Are you going to sin? Yes. Are you going to sin again? Yes. Are you going to sin again? Yes. But the standard by which you live by and the character of your life is that there is no charge against this man. He's above reproach. The Proverbs have a lot to say about this when it comes to integrity. And I just want to walk you through some of these verses just to help us understand this in our minds. About a man who lives with integrity. In Proverbs 10.9 it says this, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely. But he who makes the mistake, his ways are crooked and will be found out. A man who walks in integrity, Integrity walks securely. He has a firm foundation beneath him. He's not hiding anything. He's not covering anything. He's not one step away from from falling off the wagon. He walks securely. Proverbs 27 says this, The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. We know this, dads. More things are caught than taught in the home. And if you're walking in integrity by just being, that's going to mean more than, but, than, than what you're doing or saying or teaching. 
because you walk with integrity. Proverbs 19.1 says this, Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. I love how the Proverbs are just like, boom, this is, this is just how it is. You're a fool. Hey, you're a fool if you don't walk in integrity. And you're better off being poor and having nothing, but you have your integrity. Proverbs 11.3 says this, The integrity of the upright guides him, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys him. This is the man of God. He allows his integrity to lead him and guide him. His children are blessed because of his integrity. He walks with, he walks securely. He's strengthened by his integrity. This is the kind of man that's worth modeling, right? You find that man, follow him. Find the man of greatest integrity and follow him. Get as closely to that man as possible. Follow him. Imitate that man. I love this quote. Just to add a little perspective when it comes to church leadership and elders, this is so good. He says this, A healthy local church typically has many people, men and women, whose example we could follow. But when a church appoints a man to be an overseer, he is formally saying, here's a, an official church-recognized example of a mature follower of Jesus. Okay, now listen to this. He is not the only example. He is not a perfect example. And not necessarily the best example in that congregation for every single Christian virtue. Man, that's just so relieving. <laughs> Right? He can't do everything. He's not having perfect. Everything is not going to be perfect or wholesome, but nonetheless, an elder is duly designated model. By affirming someone as an elder, the church says, imitate him as he imitates Christ. To put it another way, an elder's job involves shepherding by being as well as doing. Elders pastor churches not only by what they do, but by who they are. And without being, the doing falls apart. That's why in Hebrews 13, 7, it says that you imitate their faith. You imitate their faith. This was Titus's high calling. This was his charge. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You guys know this. You can think through this with me of, of leaders inside and outside the church. I mean, think about it. The leaders that there are, and, and ask yourself, is that a man of integrity? Is that, a, is that, a, a, is that someone worth following? Is, is there any charge against them that would steer uh, the ship sideways? And then let me ask you this question. To the young men, this question is important. To the, to the older men, this question is important. Is your life worth imitation? They're going to pick up what you put down. We already see it in the youth group with Jonah. 
so thankful for the example that he has for this youth, and they're picking up what he's putting down. Uh, specifically, Jonah has this grunt that he does. And all the youth do this little grunt. I'm like, where do you get that from? Oh, and then the parents get together and like, your kid does that? Yeah, your kid, yeah. They're also picking up his passion for the things of the Lord. They're also picking up the, the desire that he has for these kids to grow in Christ. He's modeling for us, for our youth, someone that we want our youth to be like. And now Jonah's like, you're putting the pressure on me, man. This is what God's called the elder and pastor to be. Worthy of imitation. A man who walks in integrity. David said this in Psalm 101, which I want you to look at later on. In Psalm 101, it's a whole passage, the whole chapter is dedicated to integrity. And he says this, he makes this commitment to the Lord. I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. In my house, where I have the most control, I'm going to be filled with integrity. Because I can be filled with integrity in my home, I can be filled with integrity anywhere. I will not set my eye, before my eyes anything that is worthless. I'm going to guard my eyes as it is the entrance into my soul. Because this is what a man of integrity does. David valued integrity. question in for us is this, do we value our character? Do we value the integrity of our own heart? Do we desire to be someone who is above reproach? The principle is the same for everybody here. Do we value that? Do we desire that? Do we want people to look at our life and say, man, that person is filled with character. That, that person is filled with integrity. There's a depth to him. There's a love about him. There's a passion about him. And really what we're talking about here is that a man of integrity is someone who is in deep fellowship with God, isn't it? That's really what it is. That's what a man of integrity is. A clear conscience before the Lord. He's not about power. He's not about position. He's, not, he's, he, he's entirely about the word of God. He's in close fellowship with God. You say, okay, Joe, give me just something. Give me just something to do. Give me just, give me just something to do. I, how to start building a life of integrity? Because you're like, man, I, I feel like I've got so much to redo. Well, let me just, there's this like little phrase that might, might be helpful. It starts with this, sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow character and you reap a destiny for your family, for your church, and for your world. What's the first step? Just change your actions. Don't think that you can just knock this out in one thing. Each day, just say, commit yourself, my actions to the Lord today. I'm just going to change an act today, and hopefully that act turns into the habit. In fact, for some of you, you started the Bible reading plan, and like the first couple of days, you miss a couple of days, you come back, you're like reading like 18 chapters to catch up, and then you're going a little bit. You're trying to, you're trying to what? Just change a habit. What? That habit's going to eventually change into the character of who you are, and that character then is going to be seen in your family, in your church, and in your world. This is 
the standard which God has given to us. And let me just say this as well before we close. is There is so much grace when it comes to these things. This is not a legalistic list here where once you did something wrong, he's gone. Find the next man. Bring him up. They do something wrong, they're gone. Bring up the next man. There's so much grace in this. Godliness is built over time. Godliness is built with much, much grace. I was just talking uh, even, even this morning about David and the, and the life of David with Elliot. And the man fell over and over again. He was an adulterer. He was a liar. He, was, he constantly was getting out of things. God said this. He was a man after God's own heart. How do you reconcile that? Grace. Grace. There needs to be a renewed call on integrity in our lives. And this is how and where we begin, right here with elders. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word. We really are. There's times where we wish we had an eraser and we could just erase phrases in the Bible and just write our own. And maybe for some of us, this is a passage that we just want to erase and rewrite to make it fit who we are and what we like and what we think the characteristics should be of a godly man. And it's in that moment, Lord, where we have to make the decision. Are we going to submit to the truth and trust you, knowing that this is your blueprint for the church? This is your perfect design for a godly man? And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage and the boldness and the desire to submit to your word and trust your word. This is so good for each one of us individually that we want to be men and women of integrity. Lord, we know, too, if we were to take inventory on our own lives and look back over our life and go, man, there's, I just messed up. I, I don't know if I can do it, and I don't know if I can make those changes, Lord. I pray that you would give us the ability to make those changes and today to start forward, start fresh, start anew. I'm going to build my life upon your word. There's so much grace for each one of us. And we depend heavily upon that because we all fall short of the glory of God. And we each have different sin tendencies and we struggle in different ways. But nonetheless, Lord, we want to be marked by integrity. And so please help us in this way. Really, Lord, what we're asking you to do is to just take our life and let it be consecrated all to thee. Jesus' name.